0: What is that? Hi, this is LifeSpring number 120, bringing the message of hope, love, and good news. What about Islam? How you doing? Are you ready? Let's go. Hello and welcome to life Spring. I'm Steve Webb, your host. Jesus said, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You know, it doesn't matter where you're at, and it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter your age, your sex, or your station in life. Jesus asks you this. He says, who do you say that I am? LifeSpring is about answering that question and the question of how and why the answer can and does affect your life this very day. Not only is this LifeSpring number 120, but it's also the 300th show in the LifeSpring family of podcasts. Yeah. Okay, enough of that, enough of that. Let's get on with the show. It's going to be a good one, so I'm really glad you're here. Let's go.
1: Author of my faith, rekindle this flame, burn it hot and bright in me today. Perfector of my soul, will you rule this heart again? I want to be where you are, without you I'm lost, will you be the keeper of? Lord, to you I run. So help me overcome when my faith is weak. I'll follow you today. Lord, keep me as I pray. It's your fire I see. I wanna show the warmth of your love. And I wanna shine the light of your word. I wanna be consumed by your Holy Spirit. So, author of my faith, rekindle this flame. of my soul Will you rule this heart again I want to be where you are Without you I'm lost Will you be the keeper of this flame Lord to you I run To help me overcome When my faith is weak Follow You today Oh, and keep me as I pray It's Your fire I seek I want to show The warmth of Your love Flame burn it hot and bright in me today. Perfector of my soul, will you rule this heart again? I want to be where you are. Without you, I'm lost. Will you be the keeper of?
0: That's Waba with Flame. Of course, you can find info on the show notes page. Well, today is the final show in the mini-series on cults and other religions. Of course, we took off a few weeks from the series because I would much rather focus on the goodness of Jesus and his message of hope, love, and good news than on giving too much of a spotlight to counterfeits. It's kind of like being in the Louvre with all of these wonderful masterpieces like Leonardo Da Vinci's... Mona Lisa or a Rembrandt, and then being asked to look at a black and white newspaper print of the art. Why would I want to do that when I have the real thing right here, you know? So for those that are new to the show, I really highly recommend going back and listening to show number 107 for a full explanation and background on my thoughts on cults and other religions. But briefly, the reason I'm doing this miniseries is because I've had lots of questions from listeners about this religion or that cult or belief system and you know like how do they fit in with Christianity are they compatible with what Jesus taught what do these people believe should I get involved with someone who's in this group or that group or what have you you know what I'm saying I don't do these shows in order to make fun of or take the I've got it and you don't attitude Jesus taught that everyone must come to him in humility and as a child not as a proud religious person who lords it over others. That's, that's not what this is about. This is just about uh, providing information that people ask for. My job here is to talk about the goodness of God and how He is reaching out to me and to you, offering to begin a life-changing relationship based on what He did for us, what Jesus did for us. My job is not to bash other people or other religions. Today I'm only going to point out some of the differences between what Jesus teaches and what Islam teaches, okay? So one thing we need to say is that there are several different sects, (laughs) S-E-C-T-S, within Islam, each one having distinct differences, uh, something like 150 different groups within Islam. I'm not going to talk about all of them today because I don't want to take the time, what I'm going to do is try to give an overview of the basic principles that most Muslims would most most likely agree with, okay? So what I'm going to do is start with what is known as the five pillars. These are the cornerstones of Islam. These are required by every Muslim. First, by far the most important of the five pillars is is that there is one God. There is a phrase that one must confess and believe in order to be a Muslim, and that is this. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the Apostle of Allah. You must understand, this is absolutely central to Islam. According to Muslim people, Allah has no partners and no equals. He has no son, no father, no relative, and no associates. As a matter of fact, one of the phrases written in some mosques is... Allah has no Son. Of course, this is in direct opposition to Christianity. We believe that without the Son, Jesus, there is absolutely no hope of salvation. Followers of Jesus believe that the Bible clearly teaches that, yes, there is only one God, but that He is somehow three. Not three gods, but one God, consisting of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It could take an entire show to try to explain this, and maybe sometime I will, but not today. Suffice it to say that there's quite a lot of scripture to back this up. I do not entirely understand the concept, but that's okay. That's part of the faith thing. I really have to say that if I could understand everything that there is to know about God, He wouldn't really be much of a God, would He? I'm not that smart, and God isn't that simple. I'm perfectly fine with not being able to understand it all. I accept the fact that God is a triune being, or that that means that there are three parts to him. Each one is distinct and separate, and yet God is one. Okay, moving on. The second pillar of the five is what they call Salat. That's the prayers which each Muslim has to recite five times a day. The first prayer is said in the morning and the last one in the late evening. When they say their prayers, a Muslim is required to be facing in the direction of Mecca, the city where Muhammad was born. I'll talk about Muhammad in a moment. Prayers make use of verses from the Quran and are said in Arabic. And by the way, the Quran is their holy book. The third pillar is giving financially to the community of believers or giving alms. A-L-M-S. Muslims believe that Allah owns everything, and we humans are essentially just holding what is His. So the percentage of what they give is supposed to be uh, is supposed to amount to at least one fortieth of their total worth, or two and a half percent, I think is what that works out to be. The fourth pillar is fasting, which brings self-purification. Notice I said self-purification. This is done during the the month of Ramadan, which uh, is in the ninth month of the Muslim lunar calendar. And During this time, they are uh, to abstain from all food, drink, and sexual relations from sunrise to sunset. Between sunset and sunrise, they don't fast from those things. The final pillar is known as the Hajj. That's spelled H-A-J-J, Hajj. This is a pilgrimage to Mecca, and is supposed to be done at least once in the Muslim's life. So that's a very brief look at the five pillars, but there are several other beliefs that Muslims embrace. So let's take a look at a few of those. One of them is the belief in the prophets. They believe that Allah has sent 124,000 prophets with His message but only 25 of them are mentioned in the Quran. Muhammad is said to be the final and the greatest of these. Um, Adam was the first, you know, Adam and Eve, that Adam, Adam was the first, and was then followed by Abraham, Jacob, Ishmael, Isaac, David, Solomon, John the Baptist, and Jesus, along with some others. Now, the, the need for this continuing march of prophets is that according to Islam, The message carried by the earlier prophets was corrupted over time. They absolutely reject the Christian teaching that Jesus is the Son of God as blasphemy because of the belief that God is one and indivisible. And as long as we are on the subject of the prophets, let's talk for a moment about Muhammad. Muhammad was born at Mecca in what is now Saudi Arabia in 570 A.D., His father was a leading citizen of the area, but he died just before Muhammad was born. And he was actually named by his grandfather. On hearing of uh, his son's death, he went to the daughter-in-law's house, took the baby in his arms, and called him Muhammad, which means the praised one. When he was about five years old, his mother uh, took him on a trip to Yathrib, later called Medina, but she died on the way back home. At about 25 years of age, he entered into the service of a rich widow, and her name was Khadija, who lived in Mecca. She was so impressed with his service that she offered to marry him, even though he was 15 years uh, younger than she was. Muhammad accepted and was deeply, deeply devoted to her. As long as she lived, he took no other wife. But after his wife's death, Muhammad did take other wives. In fact, he eventually had 15 wives, which is quite significant when the Quran, which came later from his revelations, allowed for only four wives. One author on Islam says uh, from several historical accounts, it's clear that he married someone new every year after Khadijah's death. Uh, According to this person, Ayesha, the youngest of his 11 wives, used to say that the prophet loved three things, women, scents, and food. Muhammad had married this person, Ayesha, when she was only 10 years old. Some of the uh, places I've read said that she was nine. Muhammad was an introspective man, and while living in Mecca, he withdrew each year to a cave on Mount Hira in the nearby desert. There he meditated and prayed for several days, and during the month of Ramadan, as Muhammad was meditating in a cave, a voice called out to him that said, Recite. At first he was afraid. He didn't understand what he was uh, supposed to recite. And then the voice said, In the name of thy lord, the creator who created mankind from a clot of blood, recite. Now Muhammad was extremely disturbed and he went home to his wife. He was afraid that he was possessed by an evil spirit. So his wife Khadija consoled him and then called for her cousin, an elderly convert to Christianity. He assured Muhammad that he was not crazy but that he had experienced a true revelation like those God had allowed Moses and the prophets and Muhammad must submit to it. The counter, the, the counsel that this elderly man gave Muhammad significantly affected his understanding of God and religion. Just as a lot of other converts have not necessarily had a real good grasp of biblical Christianity, this was true of Khadijah's cousin. He had been largely influenced by the Nestorian view of Christianity, especially concerning the person of Jesus Christ, and Nestorians rejected the idea that Jesus was God. The revelations continued for Muhammad, and they were later recorded in what is called the Quran, which means, by the way, recite. Muhammad never claimed that he was proclaiming a new religion, He believed that what had been revealed to him was the same religion revealed to other prophets, such as Abraham, Moses, Solomon, Jonah, and Jesus. Here's the deal, though. He thought that the religion revealed to the earlier prophets had become corrupted, and that he was now restoring it to its original purity. Muhammad emphasized monotheism, or the belief in one God, and this brought him into great conflict with his fellow Meccans, who believed in polytheism, or many-gods. In particular, the cubed stone building known as the Ka'aba had 360 idols of the local Arab tribes. Muhammad's anti-idolatry message in Mecca made him an enemy of the city. Opposition to his views continued to escalate until finally, in 622, he was forced to get out of Medina, then known as Yathrib, about 250 miles north of Mecca. His flight was known as the Hagira or Hajira, The name of the city was later changed to Medina, which means City of the Prophet. Now, Islam shifted at this point from a monotheistic religion to a monotheistic philosophy of religion, politics, and daily life. Sound familiar? Muhammad was offered leadership in Yafrib and he took it. Now, so significant was Muhammad's flight from Mecca to Medina that the year became the first year in the Islamic calendar. Dates are noted as A-H, after Hegira, or Hegira. Muhammad gathered forces together there that enabled him to conquer Mecca in 630. He destroyed the idols in the Kaaba and proclaimed it as a mosque. Two years later, Muhammad died in this tomb, and his tomb is in the Prophet's Mosque in Medina. It's interesting to note that although Muslims consider it a weakness of Christianity that there are so many different groups within it, there are also, as I said, many sects within Islam, about 150. The largest sects in Islam are the Sunnis and the Shiites. We've heard about them on the news. About 90% of all Muslims are Sunnis who trace their heritage to Muhammad's first four spiritual and political successors. The Shiites are the next largest sect of Islam. And the Shiites insist that the true line from Muhammad came through his son-in-law. So let's talk a little bit about the source of authority. You know where they, where what, what source they look to as the final authority. Of course, they hold the Quran as its final authority. Muslims believe that the Quran was dictated to Muhammad by the angel Gabriel, and that it was later recorded in Arabic. Much later, as a matter of fact, the Quran is given the highest reverence by the Muslims. They dare not touch it without first being washed and purified. They read it with the greatest care and respect, never holding it below their waist, according to one author. Now, although the Quran was written five to six hundred years after the New Testament was written, 75% of the Quran is from the Holy Bible, according to one author, who is an Arabic-speaking Christian. Of course, uh, Muslims reject the deity of Jesus as we've already talked about and they deny that his death on the cross had anything to do with paying for the penalty of sin. Muslims believe that he was taken to heaven by God before having to go to the cross as a matter of fact. They believe that whoever it was that died on the cross was only someone who appeared to be like Jesus and that it was not him. Now here's a significant difference between Islam and Christianity as well. Another one. Of all the contrast between Islam and Christianity, one of the most apparent is the different attitudes of men towards women. The Quran says this, Men are in charge of women because Allah hath made the one of them to excel the other because they spend of their property for the support of women. So good women are the obedient, guarding in secret that which, that which Allah hath guarded. As for those from whom ye fear rebellion, admonish them, and banish them to beds apart, and scourged them. A Muslim husband may cast his wife adrift without giving a single reason or even notice. The husband possesses absolute, immediate, and unquestioned power of divorce. No privilege of a corresponding nature is reserved for the wife. Although some people debate how easy it is for a Muslim husband to divorce his wife, all agree that a Muslim wife does not have equal rights. Now, conversely, the Bible sets forth the equality of woman and man. They are considered to be one in Christ, from Galatians chapter 3. And that gives them equal standing before God. Christian husbands are commanded, in Ephesians 5, Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. The word translated love there refers to an act of the will whereby the husband is to seek the highest good of his wife. Muslims might claim that their men are seeking the highest good of the four wives and unlimited number of concubines or sexual partners that the Quran allows them, but others would seriously question this. The Bible nowhere indicates God's approval of sexual relationships between unmarried persons. Instead, it commands believers to flee adultery and having sex outside of marriage. Now, here's sort of the bottom line, salvation. Salvation in Islam is based on a works kind of thing. Each Muslim is viewed as having his deeds weighed on a giant scale. If the good deeds outweigh the bad, he is allowed to enter paradise. In Islam, it is believed that God judges people by their deeds or their works, not by rites or ceremonies such as baptism. Islam further denies that a human can attain religious happiness on the basis of faith alone. So what does the Bible say about good works? Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine says, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Listen, good works are important, but not as a means of, means of salvation. The good works are an evidence of salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before set forth that we should walk in them. Good works are meaningless to God unless a person first acknowledges his sinful condition and trusts Jesus as his Savior. See, one of the differences is that Muslims see man as essentially good and Christians see man as, because of the, the sin of Adam, as fallen. And we are in a sinful condition uh, from the beginning. As soon as we are old enough to, to understand the difference between good and evil, we have reached what is, has been called the age of accountability. And we all sin. The Bible says that. We all are in need of a Savior. Muslims see that man is essentially good. And, you know, if your good stuff outweighs your bad stuff, you're in good shape. But it's interesting that Muslims do see a need for a special consideration by Allah. This is evident from their teaching concerning jihad or holy war. The jihad means struggle. It, it it doesn't just talk about a holy war. It's the struggle to do the right thing at the right time. And jihad just means struggle. It's not always war. But Concerning a holy war, according to the Quran, those who died during a jihad or a holy war are considered martyrs and they earn immediate entrance into paradise. It doesn't matter what the balance is between good and bad on that great giant scale. If they die in a holy war, they are granted immediate entrance into paradise. George Grant, an observer of the Middle East crisis of the Islamic advancement around the world, says... Because jihad is an innate aspect of Islam, the ambition to conquer the world and subjugate the infidels, and by the way, an infidel is anybody who does not agree or is not a Muslim, the ambition to conquer the world and subjugate the infidels has never been abandoned by the Muslims. It was something that is taught in the Quran and it's something that they believe today. And, of course, you can tell that by what's going on in the world. You know, our politicians like to say that this is not a religious war that we're in. I've got to tell you, from the perspective of the Muslims who are fighting in the war, it's a religious war. And uh, I believe that it is, whether our politicians want to admit it or not. This is a religious war that we're in. With its concept of immediate entrance into paradise because of being a martyr in a holy war, That is a religious system based on human merit. That's how they can get those guys to strap those bombs on. And they think that by doing that, they will earn entrance into heaven. But listen, all systems of human merit fall short. Some people may merit more than others, but none can merit right standing before a holy God. There's no way that I can live a life good enough to be able to earn entrance on my own into heaven. New Testament book of Titus, it says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. It's only because of his love and his mercy that I have any hope of getting into heaven. And of course the Bible teaches that if we believe in our heart that Jesus is who he said he is, the Son of God, he lived a perfect life, and uh, he died for my sins and your sins and he was raised back to life on the third day which proved his deity if we believe that and if we turn our life over to him if we can confess our sins and we turn away from them we're guaranteed entrance into heaven that's what being born again is born again is not a denomination it's just a phrase that, that talks about the fact that I have turned from the old way and accepted him as my savior, that's all that—that's all there is to it. Does that mean that I am now um, having to live a perfect life? No, there's no way I can. The apostle Paul said that, uh, and he wrote much of the New Testament. He said, "You know what? I, I I get so mad at myself." I'm paraphrasing here, of course. He said, "You know, my stinking nature is that I, I I don't do what I should do, and I I do what I shouldn't do, and and he said it's 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 a struggle all the time, but yet." Because of what Jesus did, I'm forgiven. So, Islam is more than a religion. It is a monotheistic philosophy of religion, politics, and daily life. One Muslim explains that the Islamic State is not actually a state, but a world order with a government, a court, a constitution, and an army. No kidding. This guy also says that to enter this Islamic state is to make a decision for peace with one's fellow humans in the community of Islam. Oh, really? Then what's all that fighting going on in Iraq between the Shiites and the Sunnis? They're both Islam. They're both Muslims. But they're killing each other because they don't agree with one another. Islam means peace? No. The word may mean peace, but that's not what it is. You want to have peace? The Bible tells us, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if, uh, if we're really believers, says, people will know you by your love one for another. It's, it's not just lip service. It's how we actually treat one another. If I say that I'm a Christian, if I say that I'm a believer, if I say that I'm a follower of Jesus, but I treat my brother like dirt, or if I think that I should kill him because he doesn't agree with me, I'm not, I'm not a believer. The way to peace is through Jesus Christ. It's not through Islam. They're killing each other, let alone killing us. But now here's, here's the bottom, bottom line. God loves them just as he loves everybody else on the planet. God wants them to be able to come to him. The true God, the real God, the God that is a God of love, the God that is a God of grace, that's what God wants. And he made a way for them to come to him. And that way is through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. And yes, a Muslim can come to him. It sometimes seems like an impossible task. But through prayer, through love, it can happen. And really, as as believers, it's our job to pray for them and to befriend them when possible and show them that Jesus was more than a prophet, but that he truly is the Son of God. Jesus is God, and Jesus is the only way to salvation.
2: by my heart today Said let's go walking like we used to But I was busy Busy I said Gonna have to wait for another day So you walk away What am I supposed to say Is that going to be okay You draw me gently to your presence But I've been headstrong, I've been hard, hard-hearted Come and live my life a little more like you You make all things new But I've been struggling to stand beside you, Lord you skill
0: no composer has captured the musical heart and soul of America, as did Irving Berlin. In addition to familiar favorites such as God Bless America and Easter Parade, he wrote, I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas, which still ranks as an all-time best-selling musical score. In an interview for the San Diego Union, Don Freeman asked him, is there any question you've never been asked that you would like someone to ask you? He said, well, yes, there is one. What do you think of the many songs you've written that didn't become hits? My reply would be that I still think they're wonderful. You know, God too has an unshakable delight in what and whom he has made. He thinks each of his children are wonderful. Whether they're a hit in the eyes of others or not, God will always think that they're wonderful. Wow, isn't that a great thing to know? Boy, I rely on that. Hey, music today was Waba and Zach and Sarah. Of course, you can go to the show notes page at LifespringPodcast.com and find out all the links. Email me, would you? Let me know how, what you thought about the, the series. Um, also, you can ask an ask Steve question. Send them to steve.lifespring at gmail.com. And, of course, the best thing to do is to call me at 206-350-CALL and leave a comment. I'll even put it on the show if it's a good one. <laughs> Uh, remember also the other LifeSpring shows at LifeSpringPodcast.com. Got some really good shows over there, including the LifeSpring Family Bible, where we're reading the Bible through in one year. If you like the shows, tell a friend, would you? That's the very best thing you could do for me. Just tell a friend, spread the word, let people know about LifeSpring. Until I see you next time, I'm Steve Webb. God bless you. This has been an InTouch Productions podcast.